Welcome to TechSync 36, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent and Jason Roberts. And today we have a special guest with us, Jeff Haney. Uh, Jeff Haney is co-founder and CEO of AppCelerator. And um, Jason uh, has started using Jeff's product. And uh, I think I'll let Jason take over from here. Yeah, so Jeff, I, I, I stumbled across uh, Titanium. It was uh, someone had mentioned on a blog about uh, iPhone development. And uh, I was, I, so I mean, I am in the, in starting a project where we're, we need to build an iPhone app. And I didn't really have much experience with Coco or uh, Objective-C or anything. And so when I saw that there was some product that might allow you to build an actual iPhone app, a native iPhone app, with using JavaScript, which I do know, I was like, wow, that's worth checking out. And I did. I've spent about 10 hours so far. And frankly, I'm blown away. <laughs> so I, nice. uh, it really is amazing. Um, and I just want to find out what's the catch. So <laughs> <laughs> the catch is uh, you have to know JavaScript and you can't be an Objective-C dude. That's, right. that's not a bad catch. Yeah, it's a bad catch. I know. <laughs> there's, I, yeah. there's like millions and millions of web developers in the world that want to learn how to do this. And yeah, there, there's no real catch. I mean, it's, it's a pretty cool thing. We've been working on it quite a while. And, you know. It's one of those vision kind of things. We're hoping that we can make the world a little bit a better place by uh, providing this kind of capability. Yeah, you know, I because I initially I initially looked into doing some Mac development and potentially iPhone development, and I had I read a book on Objective C and I and I and a book on Interface Builder and Xcode, and I was playing with some tutorials, and the Objective C just looked really weird to me. Uh, coming from a background of like C++ and C Sharp and PHP and JavaScript and things like that, they all look kind of the same, you know? And you, 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 can, you can read all those languages. But, you know, but going to something like Objective-C where you have this sort of message passing concept and it just looks really odd. And I was having a really frustrating time, you know, um, learning it. And then when a friend of mine approached me and, and, and wanted me to help him build an iPhone app, and I told him, I said, look, I don't really know Objective-C <laughs> or Coco. And he's like, no, no, I want you to help me. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> so <laughs> we, we started playing around with it. And, 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 and right, actually right before, we, I think we spent like a couple hours one day doing some Objective-C tutorials and going through some stuff. And then, then it's, and then after that, I found the tit uh, titanium, uh, stuff about titanium. Well, wasn't it because I'd mentioned to you on the podcast that I had a friend who was building something similar? And well, then that probably prompted you was, to go out and search. The, the no, no, it wasn't. Because the impression I got from you was that you would write some JavaScript that would run inside some other app. You right. know, I didn't get the impression that it was going to actually generate, that they're going to have to uh, have some kind of application that was going to take the JavaScript and generate native uh, Objective-C code. And it was because I happened to see an article on Hacker News, and it was actually in a comment on an article by Leah Culver was talking about her first iPhone app. And so it says, hey, why don't you use Titanium? And I'm like, what the hell is that? Yeah, cool. <laughs> and, uh, so then I looked at it, and I'm like, what? JavaScript? All right, well, it's, you know, this is worth a shot. And I'm looking at it, and I'm going, this is retardedly easy. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like there's got to be a catch here. And the only complaint I had at first, because this was like a week ago, was the documentation really didn't name a lot of the properties and events and, and methods. But after a couple hours, I realized that there was this one like Uber sample project. You called know, Jeff, I'm just, I'm just going to jump in here and tell Jason, because he, he needs to stop talking now, because we need to get some, some input from Jeff. Oh, yes, come on. This is I'm, great. I'm basking in it. I'm blushing. Well, I, well, I, I want to say, I want people to understand, you know, you're coming from this problem where you don't know, we, we're coming to this iPhone, because there's like all these web developers, like you said, 
who look at this objective C and, and look at all this stuff and like this is a, this is a huge learning curve. This is a nightmare. And I'm just sort of trying to lay out like where I was. And uh, I'm telling you, it's 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 fantastic. So, okay. So here's my question, Jeff. Um, number one, um, and we'll, we'll get back into the history of it and everything. But is there what? does it not do? Because the first question people might have be like, okay, so you could generate some simple iPhone apps. I mean, it seemed to me that you could do pretty much everything. Am I, am yeah, I right? It, yeah, I mean, it just doesn't suck. Um, uh, you know, it, it, I mean, our goal, I mean, there's, you know, there's sort of what we are trying to do and, and technically accomplish, and then there's sort of the practical reality. Um, there are a few things that, that Titanium today doesn't allow you to do but that's that that gap is closing quite dramatically um we we're releasing if you've followed us for a while we're releasing about every 4 to 6 weeks uh, pretty pretty massive releases pretty massive capabilities um you know but those largely today have been limited although this is changing pretty dramatically those have been traditionally limited to more um high fidelity games first person shooter type stuff um, right. which you know which uh, you know, a large amount of the applications on the on the store are gaming related applications. Right. Um, although we have now, and and again, we we kind of find ourselves amazed on the flip side of building a cool product and then seeing what people do with it. Um, we're just amazed. We saw a game this week that was built by a very very large entertainment company, um, and that's uh, going out I think next week. Um, built on Titanium, and we were just blown away. I mean, it was. Uh, right. Some, it was some uh, flash gaming developers that um, built it for this very large entertainment property, and uh, we were like, "Wow, we didn't really know you could do stuff like that with Titanium." I mean, it, you know, certainly it's technically possible. We hadn't really thought about it in that way, and we've had quite a number of games being built. And I think, so I think the uh, the near future will probably start to actually bring in uh, since we've had su- such a little uh, kind of a big cluster around gaming interest. We'll start. To probably bring in collision detection and physics engines and some things like that that allows sort of those types of applications to be built a lot easier with Titanium. But but right. as far as like other types of applications um, that you would expect, I mean, you've got the full range of capabilities as if you built the application in Objective-C. So whether it's, you know, augmented reality or camera control or geo or video or native UI kind of capabilities or web services or Facebook or Yahoo or things like that, we've got all those capabilities built right into the platform. Um, And, you know, in most cases, like let's say streaming audio, you want to stream, you know, internet radio onto your phone and build an application that does that. I mean, in most cases, that's virtually like three lines of code. Um, Yeah. You know, it's it's really we've really focused on kind of two design goals. One is to make it really, really simple to do very complicated things, um, but also sort of provide a low low level of enough API that people could actually do um, much more complicated things that maybe uh, um, that maybe need to have a lower level of abstraction. So you know um, that old sort of quip that you want to make simple things um, easy and you want to make uh, you know hard things possible. So. Right. Now, I have to say, part of me wants nobody to find out about this so that I can like a super genius when I knock out an app in like three days and they're like working like three months. I mean, this, the, the, the project I'm working on, this friend of mine, he went and they, they, they spoke to two or three different development shops, iPhone development shops, and they were quoted thirty-five, forty, forty-five $45,000. And that's what sort of prompted them to ask me what I thought about it. And I initially said, yeah, why don't you try and just teach yourself Objective-C and play around with it and see what you can do. And I knew that was still going to take some time. But now that I'm looking at this, I'm like, wow, I mean, we could really knock something out quick. I mean, we knocked out a whole bunch in just the 
the the second day that we actually sat down and worked on it, I mean, five hours. I mean, he he mocked up like eight screens, all right, eight or nine screens in balsamic mockups, and yep. then I just was looking. I'm like, all right, screen, boom, Windows tabs, boom, next. You know, go to the web server. So I was like, nothing. Yeah, like yeah. We 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 built. We worked with a very large brand um, that had spent about eight weeks. Uh, paying an outside iPhone expert kind of development shop uh, and and just a really uh, well-known brand and and, and game uh, it's not a game it's a uh, branded application in the iPhone store and um, we were able to work with their uh, with their team and rebuild it in titanium in two days uh, and I'm not talking about a real simple set of tabs and screens yeah. I mean and certainly it was using our kind of professional services people to help kind of help them sort of get going really quickly so maybe you know, maybe it would have taken them, you know, a week versus two days, um, but but they were they were the same thing. Yeah, I, I would almost the think the money side time. Does does Titanium work? Is it um, a Mac only thing, or does it work on PCs as well? Titanium itself is a cross-platform um, uh, uh, platform ca- capability, so it runs on Mac, Linux, and, and Windows. Um, the SDK for iPhone limits you to a Mac. Uh, in fact, the terms of service say you actually have to build a, a, an iPhone app on a Mac, a machine, and using their SDK. So, of course, we, we have to live with that limitation as well. Um, but if you're, build, if you're building a um, if you're building an, an Android app or, or, you know, or, or even a desktop tablet, uh, desktop ebook type app, you can build that on any, any platform. But for Mac, iPhone specifically, you will need a Mac machine. Yeah, yeah. Right. So what we were doing, which was kind of funny, is I don't have a Mac, or at least I don't have an updated Mac with, that could support, I think, the latest iPhone SDK. And so we just hooked uh, my, my buddy's Mac onto my Wi-Fi, and we had Titanium on his machine. And I was coding, because I had the bigger monitors and everything in my, you know, my text editor that I like. And so we're editing on that, and then we just drag it to a shared directory and would compile it automatically. On. Yeah. Yeah, we have so, a number of people saying they're doing stuff like that as well. So, so you so you can you can fully develop your app on Windows, and it's only it's only at compile time that you need to uh, move it over. Yeah, I mean, it's the cycle time is a little slower because, like you said, you got to sort of you know you have to have a shared drive that you're actually saving the files onto because um, Titanium itself has to kind of the compilers and stuff and the simulator and all that has to sort of be running on a Mac. But uh, but certainly we've had people. Um, and we've heard of people using Hackintosh and some other, uh, you know, capabilities to be able to do that. But uh, but most, uh, you know, and funny, funny thing is we hear a lot from people that are so excited because now they've got, they've got an excuse either for their company or for themselves to get a Mac. So right. <laughs> we should get a check from uh, Apple for as many Macs have been sold because of Titanium. But but just to be clear, if I if I'm developing on Windows because I've only got a Windows machine and I'm using Titanium, can I actually have a go of what I'm developing? Like, can I kind of play around with it and experience the product as I'm developing? Not without it? a Mac. Oh, I see. Okay, fine, fine. That makes no, sense. No, if you're building Android apps, you could, right? Yeah, with Android or even desktop apps. Yeah, absolutely. You could use Titanium, and Titanium itself runs on all three platforms. Right. It's just that. It's just that. See, Justin, when you when you run Titanium, it'll it'll look and check. Do you have the iPhone SDK and do you have the Android SDK? And it'll look on your machine. And you can right. just go download the Android SDK. Now, obviously, you can't install the iPhone SDK on Windows. But doesn't the same ti- titanium project? I mean, I'm I'm just I don't know whether because obviously I haven't played with it. But if I if I build something in the Android SDK, can I then save it out into the iPhone SDK kind of thing later? So in other words, I could completely develop on the Windows platform. I could play around with it, have a look at it, and then at one stage, just say, right now I'm going to export this to iPhone instead. 
Yeah, I mean, so what you would normally do there, yeah, you might start in start in Android and build your application, and and the only considerations you really have um, between Android and iPhone is like what UI elements do you want to use and leverage that might be specific to one or the other environments. Um, right. A lot of the capabilities like table views and dialogues and views and things like that work kind of cross-platform. Um, but there are certain things that might be on um, that might be on an iPhone UI-wise that don't exist on an Android. And we've kind of deliberately made that decision because people, um, developers have come to us and said, look, we want as much capability as available in the platform as possible, even at, even at the potential downside that we might have to do some conditional logic or we might you know, not be able to use that on one platform versus the other. Um, but we don't want to necessarily have a lowest common denominator issue where, you know, if it doesn't work on both platforms, you don't get it. And yeah, most I mean, developers it, are fine with that. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's easy. It's yeah. like, you know, it's like if, you know, Android do this, if iPhone do that, you know. Yeah. I mean, and that's really, certainly better than if Objective-C have this developer, <laughs> if uh, Java have that developer. You know, it's, it's certainly that. I mean, you already have to do this sort of in the web today, right? You know, there's yeah. certain IE things and there's certain, for the rest of the open web, there's like, you know, it works great in Safari and, and Mac and Opera or Safari of uh, uh, Chrome and, and Opera and Firefox, and then you run it in IE and it like just doesn't work. <laughs> so, oh, I mean, yeah. so developers are sort of already kind of used to this. It sucks, but it, you know, it's sort of a, it's a better trade-off than you know, no development at all. Well, in two different development environments, two different developers, two different platforms. Yeah, completely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's very exciting, and and just just listening to you guys talk about it is making me think now. You know this. This could be the thing that really does make me go out and get a Mac. And I'll tell you, also, can it w um, push to iPad as well? Yes. Um, we have, uh, we have uh, project support in, I in iPad today. We announced uh, kind of a big announcement uh, about four weeks ago. And we will the 1.1 release comes out a week from Monday. Uh, and it looks like it'll have official iPad project support built into it. Hmm. Yeah, Very you know, cool. um, Justin, just uh, one more thing I would say to point out that was kind of interesting. Guyon, who I'm working with on a uh, another project, a friend of mine, he runs a develop. He's running a or leading a development group at his company. Uh, he's located in Norway, and he they're building an iPhone app and an Android app, and they have like a couple guys on each one, and they're all they're all I think are Java developers. But he's talking about you know they're so far behind the iPhone because of the Objective C, and I'm like you know what, scratch all that crap and use Titanium now. Yeah. Forget it. I tried to tell him, like, look, I guarantee you, just put one guy on Titanium, he'll catch up, surpass all those guys within a week. Exactly. So in, in terms of JavaScript, um, Jason, because you've, you've obviously done some development on this now, like, would I be able to use this as a JavaScript developer? Would, what level of JavaScript developer oh, do you yeah, need to no, be? Oh, yeah, no. It's not like, it's not, it's not, you know, fancy pants JavaScript. You know, it's like, I mean, it's the, the guy I'm building this with, Mark, I, you know, he knows a little PHP and a little Java, and I'm like, yeah, it's just a function, right? And, you know, loops and if-thens, and, you know, here's a couple funky ways that you can, you know, do with JavaScript that you can't do with, like, you know, function name equals function, or you can pass in... You know, one thing I noticed you guys do in a lot of your samples, um, Jeff, is you put like the, you define the function, the callback function sort of in the parameter yeah. list, you know, and it's like, it, to somebody who's used to say PHP or, or Java, they might look at that and go, what is that? But once you just show them what it really is, it's no big deal. But it's that's easy. just basic Ajax development anyway, yeah. with enclosures, right? So Yes, yeah. disclosures. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it, I'll give it to you this way. My wife is sort of like not a developer at all. She's like a PHP hack. Is it? She's like a WordPress hacker. So she, she understands sort of how to just do some minor mods to PHP to make her little WordPress themes. She was able to like – I. She was able to take Kitchen Sink, which um, was kind of like our Uber project that sort of for developers to show them how to do a bunch of different 
examples. She was able to sort of take that, shell it down, and then uh, she built an iPhone app and published it for – she's a professional photographer. So she's got some decent Photoshop skills. So she was able to take that, shell it down, and build like a, uh, a pretty cool-looking uh, iPhone app uh, for her photography business in like a week. And she is hmm. not a JavaScript coder at all. I mean, she understands a little bit of like, okay, I know I can kind of cut and paste this, and I, I, I kind of understand what this function does. <laughs> right. And uh, yeah, so it, you know, you certainly don't have, don't have to be an Uber, you know, John Resig, uh, jQuery expert to to be able to do this. Yeah, yeah. The like I said, the the only thing that I thought was that all uh, difficult is that, and I think you guys have made a couple. A, a big improvement on this is the documentation because like you, yeah. a lot of times it's like I, I was like well what like what properties are there like I wasn't even sure what properties were or what events yeah. or yeah, there'd be like there would be like add event listener but I'm like okay what events do I have yeah we, we pushed a lot this week there's still this weekend we're going to push a whole bunch more documentation and, and we're rewriting all the guides and we've got a ton of video content that's going to come out over the next two weeks and yeah I mean certainly that's the biggest challenge I mean we're, we're still a pretty small company only about 17 employees so right. um, you know it's, it's you know coding all these different platforms and, and documentation is always the hardest part uh, yeah. So how how much does it cost me, the developer, to use Titanium? Well, the the cool thing is like we've made it free for um, the community. What we call the community edition. So there's really no difference between the community edition right now. The community edition and the professional edition are really the same exact product. The difference is the kind of capabilities you get around engagement with Accelerator as a company. Um, so the community edition is is pretty much a full featured edition. You can basically get the product, start using it, build as many apps you want. What we have is basically this first step up as a professional edition, which allows you to to get more SLA-driven support and 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 kind of help from Accelerator, uh, and it allows you to get. Um, we have also an analytics product that uh, we haven't talked about. We have an analytics product we've recently launched that allows you to get more data in the analytics. So you get six months worth of data, whereas the free product gives you seven uh, seven days worth of trailing data. Um, so it's sort of the first step up. Um, we have a bunch of companies that it's it's usually for organizations that are you know building a, a uh, an app that means something really to them as a, as a company or, or large organizations that have, you know, significant number of developers on the project and really want to make sure that they get our attention and our support and our help. Um, and, and, and it's a way that, you know, the community can, you know, and businesses that are using our product can sort of give back as well because we are investing significantly in Titanium. And the only way we can continue to invest in that and, and to build out these features is to be able to create a business model around it. Hey, we, we 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 got no problem with that. <laughs> We're always yeah, you got to figure out how to monetize it. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It it sounds something similar to like a MySQL thing or a Red Hat thing. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's similar. We have we have a number of things that we're going to launch. We also have an enterprise subscription. It's not on the website today, but we have a number of companies that bought. That's sort of a, a higher level of SLA and higher level of data analytics. Um, and then yeah, we have uh, we have a number of of kind of developer. I like I like to call them developer friendly or indie friendly offerings that we're hoping to roll out here really soon. One is advertising, so that developers that want to build apps that have advertising in it as an alternate way to monetize their applications. Um, we have an, uh, a set of ad network partners that we've been working with. We're getting ready to roll out an ad network product, um, and that will be really super simple, like in the in the in the normal way that AppCelerator makes things, it'll be very similar and very simple for developers to be able to say, "I just want advertising in my app, um, and here's my credit or here's my PayPal account, and I'll start getting paid." 
Um, and so we're getting ready to roll that out. And then we have some commerce related, very similar things around virtual transactions and commerce in your app for being able to do mobile commerce. And we'll be able to really help you be able to do that kind of stuff as well. Interesting. Um, the goal, the goal of those products, obviously, is to really align ourselves with companies that want to add those capabilities into their products um, and are willing to either make money by doing that or, or pay us a little bit of money to help facilitate that transaction. Could you have bootstrapped something like Titanium, or is the only way for, some, for something like that to have started with uh, some kind of uh, cash <laughs> some kind of cash account that you could dip into to, get, yeah, to move forward? That's, that's a real good question. We actually did. We started Titanium um, about three years ago. Uh, it wasn't called Titanium at the time, but uh, and the original product uh, idea was, um, you know, like all these companies, you know, you, you, you iterate and you iterate or die or you iterate and hopefully you find something that's interesting and you can build a business around it. And um, Nolan and I, so my, this is my third venture back startup. So Nolan and I started the company a little over three years ago, almost four years ago this fall. And um, we actually got the company up to about a million and a half dollars in revenue um, hmm. around kind of the first generation of this product um, and mainly doing services and training and, and things like that. We took no, no, in, no outside capital. It was basically uh, funded through customer revenues and and our own pocketbook, and um, from that we sort of uh, had this idea of, of of titanium and the network and and sort of where we wanted to go. And because the the vision uh, um, outmatched the the bank account, um, we really felt like to be able to do that, we needed to raise money and we needed to do it, you know, from a from a position of strength and, and, right. and we were in a position of strength because we, we had options. I mean, we had gotten, we, the company was profitable. We were doing, um, you know, services work. And so we could sort of, we had about 15 employees at the time, uh, pretty much everybody doing services work around our product um, and training and things like that. Uh, and so we had options. Um, and, and so right. we decided to forego all the future revenue uh, at the time to focus 100% of the team's effort on, uh, and retooling a few people on the team to really focus on building out titanium and 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 it's been now two years it's taken us really two years of hardcore engineering um to kind of get to this point what um what did you what the what was the first product specifically what allowed you to get up to that one point five million revenue it, it was a product called entourage it was uh before jQuery became popular four years ago um we had a product called entourage that was built basically around a JavaScript framework for building rich applications in the browser okay. and um but it integrated a bunch of back end uh s o a web services logic into the client and it allowed you to build kind of these rich client applications very rapidly um with very little code and and we were able to teach a number of big companies um uh, you know, uh, you know the ability to build these applications using our product, and and the problem that we kept running into, and the reason we we came on on this idea of titanium is, was we could only get so far in the browser. I mean, we could we you know we we were sort of always the eighty twenty rule. We were always about eighty uh, percent um, close to what a desktop experience might be, um, and that twenty percent always killed us. And and the twenty percent ended up always being largely the least common denominator, which is IE6 at the time. Yep. Um, and, and you just never could really do all the really cool things um, and all the sort of UI responsiveness and kind of the capabilities. And so um, we sort of sat around and said, wow, we've done some really cool stuff. It works really phenomenal in Safari and, and sort of Firefox. And we still have this gap of kind of features. We can't write to the file system. We can't do really local databases easily. 
Um, and how do we sort of do that? And, and so we had this idea and, and, and about the time, uh, you know, um, Adobe was experimenting with Apollo before it became Air. Um, and we said, wow, that's a really interesting idea. But, but boy, we'd like to use a web stack and we'd like to use WebKit and we'd like to sort of do this differently and do it from an open source perspective um, and not sort of involve Flash. And how do you do that? And so we batted it around for a few months and sort of were convinced that somebody else was out there doing it and that, you know, we just needed to sort of ask around a bunch and we'd finally figure out who was doing it. We could sort of cuddle up to, to that effort and sort of put our energy behind that. Um, and, uh, the rest was sort of history. We, we realized that nobody else was going to do this. Nobody, no, you know, we talked to a bunch of people and, and, in the industry and they were sort of like, you know, what, <laughs> right. um, you know, uh, you know, the browsers, the, you know, the, the, the greatest thing in the world, you know? Um, and so, uh, we finally decided we wanted to build it and to build it out the way we thought we needed to build it. And the investment that it would really take to actually do a kind of significant project like this would take, take time, um, and energy to build, build the technology and build out the company. And that would require, you know, a decent amount of capital to be able to do that because we were sort of faced, you're always faced as a startup trying to bootstrap. You're always faced with this sort of, it's already hard enough as a startup, even with a hundred percent focus on doing something. Um, it's still hard to execute, um, and, and, and be precise and iterate quick enough. And so then when you have kind of paying customers and doing services and, and things like that, then you're, you know, you, you sort of have two masters and you can't serve one or the other either. Um, well, so, uh, we raise money. I just want to get an understanding of a little bit of the architecture. So you're just talking about WebKit there. So when this runs, when this code runs on the iPhone, is it combined, is it compiled objective C or is it running, is it JavaScript running through WebKit and then WebKit's talking to the OS? Yeah, that's a great question. So our desktop product, um, we are, um, we use WebKit. Um, so it's, it's sort of different between desktop and mobile. So I'll start with desktop and then I'll explain mobile. So in desktop, we, we actually build and, and compile and, and have sort of this microkernel architecture where, and WebKit's part of that microkernel architecture and where the rendering engine is a stripped down version of WebKit with a bunch of titanium APIs around it um, that we take over, we basically take over the JavaScript engine to be able to control that. And we use the rendering, um, we have our own kind of rendering layer on top of WebKit uh, and then we use the WebKit kind of parser and 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 sort of HTML layout engine and all that to actually be able to do the UI pieces. Um, on the um, on the iPhone or Android, we started out with a WebKit sort of um, approach. The problem we ran into was speed and 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 capabilities and sort of what you could really do on that kind of limited to device from a CPU and a, and a memory standpoint. <laughs> And so the one big thing we did between 0.8 and 1.0 is we moved away from that and we actually go to much more of a traditional compile. There's still an interpreter involved at some level, um, but there's no dependency anymore on WebKit. And we have much more of a direct uh, – our APIs directly compile into native code, native code um, at, at, at build time basically. And so – um, that's why it's so much faster. If you've ever seen Titanium before 0.8 versus after, you know, versus now 1.0. I mean, it's it's really almost in some cases we've done a lot of benchmarking. In some cases, it's actually faster now than native code if you wrote an Objective C by hand. That's um, incredible. So, so if yeah. I if I write an HTML table, I mean, can I now 
bearing that in mind, could I now write an HTML table in HTML in a, in a JavaScript string, and then that would somehow end up in my iPhone app? Or no, does that so get what, you, what you'd have to do for that is, so what, we've, what we did with the big architectural change we made between 0.8 and 1.0, or really the 0.9 release, which was kind of the preview to 1.0, was um, we, we took the web view um, and we kind of inverted it. So before everything was around the web view and you wrote all your APIs around the web view and you could optionally use non-web view content like table views, for example, um, and, and, you could, and you could then use those in your application. We inverted that and we basically now have a blank kind of Cocoa uh, or, or Java-based surface um, it's all pure native. It's all like animations and all that are on the GPU um, and use core animations, for example, on iPhone or, or Java 2 and 3D on, on Android. And then the web view, the HTML5 web view, is simply just another web view that we support in our platform. So if you wanted to use like an HTML table or you wanted to use anything HTML, you would simply create a web view instance and you'd give it its dimensions on how large you wanted it to be in the screen and you could place it anywhere you wanted to. Um, or you could put it in table view, whatever. And yeah. so it sort of inverts the model and, and sort of ma it actually makes logically a lot more sense now if you look at it versus what it did before. Yeah, when I, when I was looking at some samples of point eight, it was like you'd have like HTML pages and it was including JavaScript. And right. yeah, and I was a little confused because I wasn't really, I didn't quite understand that that exactly. was an older version because I was, I was using 0.93. And the 0.93, Justin, it's like, you know, var table equals titanium.ui.create table view and then you pass right. some parameters or create yeah. button create label and you just and then you add event listener and you know whatever i mean it's just like easy and so you just do it all through javascript and you have your your entry point is at app.js is that right yeah it's like yeah, a, yeah it's like your main controller and it's called app.js yeah and you can include additional javascript files right you can can yep. you, you have like a titanium dot include yep. include and here's a question I have for you. So I, I have some, you know, JavaScript um, files that I've used to, or I have one mechanism I use to create sort of a class inheritance in JavaScript. Huh? Is that, that kind of stuff supported? Yep. So if I do some funky stuff. As long as it's legal JavaScript. Yep. If it's legal JavaScript, okay. Because I want to make yep. sure. Because, you know, when you start creating an application and all of a sudden, you know, some of the samples I see, it's like, well, throwing everything in the global namespace. It's like, no, I want to create, like, you know, some objects that, that you know, hold right. up. You know. Yeah, and you, you know what? You, you'll, you, that's one of the things that, like, uh, and we're hoping to do a series pretty soon around um, around around performance tuning and things like that. I mean, that's a good example of like, um, if you were to create a whole bunch of things in the in the native, or I'm sorry, in the app.js, which lives in the global namespace, um, it also has this benefit that it lives forever. Right. It lives as long as your application is running, which also ends up being it's the negative side of it because if you create a bunch of objects that are only used once. Then, then the virtual machine, the garbage collector, doesn't know how to actually, you know, clean those objects up because they still have strong references. So, right. um, that's a good example where we have windows, or you can, in, or you can do closures effectively um, to be able to structure your application such that, um, you know, as as you no longer need those objects or windows or whatever, it gives us hints to let us know when we can actually clean them up. Um, and you can use closures to be to be able to do things like that as well, as long as you don't reference inside the closure, you don't reference things like global variables, et cetera. Um, right. So, um, but yeah, those those are similar techniques that you would have like in a web page. But the difference is a web page typically doesn't last for a long time, whereas potentially an app.js could last for the it does last for the entire life of your application. So we have things like the window to be able to compose applications better and allow you to actually manage that. Um, right. 
you know, manage that resource. What I'd, I'd be interested to find out about is the, the, the build process. So you, you created this API that sort of maps uh, generically to the iPhone SDK and the Android SDK. Um, tell us about that process. I mean, figuring that out and mapping that. I mean, did you? What were your trial and error? How did you get to that? Well, that's a that's a good question. So I'd love to glamorize and say that it was. Uh, you know, we had all this planned out and we were smart engineers up front and we did all this correct. I mean, you know, like a lot of engineering, it's trial and error and iterations. We had a we had a huge amount of um, experience we went into this process with because of desktop. We've been working on desktop since. Uh, we released the preview one in, in 2008. So we've been working with this for quite a while on the desktop. And so we went into it trying to apply the same idea uh, that we had on the desktop architecture to iPhone. Um, and, right. and that sort of worked. Um, it didn't really work at all. We, we started out with saying, well, we could just sort of kind of um, a, a kind of do what, what I would say is a phone gap and just sort of try to build a shim JavaScript layer and try to use WebKit and just try to try to sort of mimic what the iPhone does and, and HTML5. And, and that just – that was a complete utter failure. Um, and, and we weren't even one point release away from changing that to the kind of second, second architecture, second generation of the architecture, which got much closer to native and got us much closer to having kind of a fuller – fuller um, set of capabilities, but it was, it was kind of awkward because we still had this WebKit thing in the middle because you had to create an HTML file and then include a JavaScript file. And then in that JavaScript file, you had to then do your native stuff like a table view, which, right. which was sort of weird and awkward. And, and that worked pretty well um, for a lot of applications, but we started hitting the wall pretty quickly with applications where people said, well, I want to be able to put views uh, on top of a camera and be able to do these really cool augmented reality type applications and use your Twitter and geo APIs to be able to, you know, get information. And, and we were like, wow, that, you know, that's just not going to work the way we have this architected. So we took a step back um, in October um, as we had finished the, we released 08 right around in November or beginning of November, but we knew kind of going into 08 that we had to, we had to uh, make this ma- major change before 1.0 um, the advantage we had and the thought process was, well, gosh, you know, here we are getting ready to get into Thanksgiving uh, in the U.S. And um, we're going to have sort of Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's Eve. And there's going to be a little bit of time before people really kind of get back to heavy hacking in, in the beginning of the year. And so maybe we have a little bit of time to kind of catch up and really do this major shift because it's going to take a while. Um and we knew exactly by then we'd had enough iterations. We'd had eight releases of of the mobile product. Um, you know, we'd done three and four week development cycles. We had you know many thousand developers giving us a lot of input onto what the API should be and what their requirements were. And so we said, well, let's let's really focus on building out this what we call zero nine, which was our path to one point um, And uh, and that's what we did. And it's it's really paid off for us. Can the desktop version work in the same way that um, at the moment I've got a website called TweetMiner, and uh, it's basically a, a, a Twitter client, but uh-huh. it's all it's all web based. And what I've done is I've wrapped that up with Adobe Air, so that I, it's kind of like a spoof desktop app. <laughs> so all the Adobe Air does is just loads in the website. With with the desktop version of Accelerate, can you do similar kind of things with that? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you could do the absolutely exact same thing. I mean, the desktop version. Uh, if you're familiar with Air, it's it's uh, outside of the suck. It's very similar. I mean, it, it's you know you have a you have an XML file. And we have the same in mobile. 
um, that sort of gives you your main entry point for your application. Um, and then, yeah, and you would basically have a very similar capability. I mean, your your um, your local HTML and JavaScript and asset files, uh, which is very similar in, in mobile, are going to be in your application. And um, I mean, you can point to a remote website if you want, or you can run it all local. And then, I, I guess the difference with the accelerate accelerate it, 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 how do I pronounce it? Accelerator or accelerator? Accelerator. The difference is, is that you've probably been thinking a lot more along the lines of HTML, JavaScript, yeah. uh, and they've been thinking along the lines of Flash. So yes. It sounds like the best possible tool to create desktop apps in uh, in HTML and JavaScript. Yeah, I mean that's where our focus has been. Our, our real focus. I mean, like you said, I think you said it really precisely. Is their focus has been the Flash engine and using uh, using sort of WebKit and the HTML to bootstrap into Flash, and then yeah. all your development is done in ActionScript, and all your execution and runtime is done in Flash. And they use sort of, in my opinion, they sort of use the browser or the r- runtime as sort of a just sort of a bootstrapping mechanism, just like you might have in most websites that are full 100% screen websites, right? They're just one object tag that points to the Swift file, and the rest sort of is a Flash or Flex app that sort of takes over 100% of the screen. And you could call that a web app, but it really isn't. Really, it's a Flash app, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and Air, pretty much, you, you can do what we do in Titanium. You can use HTML, and you can use per JavaScript APIs, but it's sort of like an aberration or a second-class citizen, I think, in most most uh, Adobe's mind. Um, and whereas for us, it's kind of the inverted. For us, HTML JavaScript is the first-class citizen. You can use Flash, but that's sort of like an incidental thing like you would in your website. You'd bring yeah. Flash in, and you could use it, and you could use the JavaScript bridge to be able to access Titanium APIs uh, just like you could uh, you know, in normal. But but most people start as JavaScript and HTML is their foundation, is their base. And you really don't hardly ever use Flash. And in fact, a lot of now with Titanium, we now have HTML5 video support and CSS, full CSS. Does it have like desktop installer? Does it wrap it all up with a desktop installer? Or oh, do yeah. You- yeah, it generates a – it builds a desktop installer. Like, So we're a little different in Air in that case that um, Air requires sort of the Air runtime to be installed. And then right. you can run your app. And with Titanium – you don't have that. It actually generates an installer for you, and you can generate either a network-based installer for your app, or you can generate a, a bun- what we call a bundle installer, which has everything in it, no third-party dependencies. So, um, okay. So here's here's a big question. When I when I run in the Air app, the WebKit, the way that it renders, it just renders HTML horribly. Like there's just something about it I can't explain it. When when you if I'm building a desktop app in HTML and JavaScript. An accelerator. Does it render the same way as I expect HTML to render? And, it will and- render. It will render the exact same as like Safari four. Um, we're 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 very very involved in WebKit. In fact, we're we're committers uh, and contributors to WebKit. Um, we've done a decent amount of work in WebKit. Um, so and we have rewrite access to WebKit just like Apple and Google does. Um, and yeah, it it is it is just about. Um, if you were to track like the public release of Chrome or the public release of like Safari, we're very close to that. Uh, in fact, we're actually further in most cases because we're, we're closer to head, stable head, um, in their in their source repository. And yeah, I mean, and, and in fact, you can do things in Flash plus Titanium, for example, on Windows that you can't even do in Air. Like we allow full screen transparency with Flash um, on the desktop in in Titanium. Why is rendering bad? Why does it render strangely in, in the Adobe Air WebKit version? Well, because what it does is it renders, it uses the Flash rendering, basically. 
um, on top of it's not actually using the WebKit rendering in most cases. It's using the Flash rendering engine. So again, like I said, you're bootstrapping. You're really just using the HTML engine to load the Flash plugin, and then all your stuff runs on top of that. So that's why it performs very slowly in a lot of cases. That's why it doesn't render well or look well, and that's why it takes up a whole lot more memory. And you have to remember the Flash player was designed to be a um, you know, it's a 30 frames per second, you know, um, animation or video or things like that. It's for things that are constantly pumping the CPU to be able to do frames. Right. Um, Titanium doesn't do any of that, right? It's, a, it's an event-driven API. <coughs> Excuse me. It's an event-driven API where the only time it's going to take a CPU cycle is if it's got to do a draw or if it's got to do a network access or it's got to do something. So in most cases, when you're running a, uh, an, an, a, a, a Adobe Air app, even if there's no, even if it's not on screen um, or you're doing nothing, it's going to take up a huge amount of CPU just to keep that refresh rate. On Titanium, um, if you're not doing anything, it's, on, it's no CPU. You can look at the CPU in top or you know, um, uh, task manager or whatever, and you will see no CPU or, or virtually no CPU basically. Uh, and then if you're streaming audio or streaming video, then you'll see some a little bit of CPU. But in most cases, like we had a developer that took the um, that took Pandora's uh, app and and ran it in Titanium, and then they did the same, and of course in Adobe Air, uh, and the CPU in Adobe Air was about 110 of CPU constantly. It never changed, never went below 110 percent of CPU. The same exact you know Swift running in Titanium was like 10 percent CPU. Um, constant. So, you know, you just sort of get a lot of benefit and, and memory capabilities that are much better in Titanium. It's just, it's just we're taking a different approach at things, right? We don't require the flash runtime to be there. So, Jason, you want to you want to go? I think Jason that this this whole desktop side of things is just as exciting as the iPhone side of things is. Yeah, yeah. you know, I really didn't look at uh, the desktop because I I'm <laughs> I'm not really working on a project for that. I mean, I'm more uh, I've been working on the iPhone and thinking about that, and so I, that's what I was um, most interested in. But I'm glad you're asking these questions because I'm sure a lot yeah. of the well, be- the funny thing is that you know a lot of the excitement and energy you know you see in a lot of the questions around mobile, but in fact, you know, we'll we'll be very significantly dis- significant distribution of our desktop. Project product uh uh and, and worldwide this year um, well because and, it makes me feel like i can i can consider this to really create the the desktop app that i've always wanted to create right yeah but i haven't because i, I just i hate the latency of flash right i just hate that latency and html and javascript give me instant response time yeah and the other the other thing we have in desktop is very similar to, to mobile and from an api standpoint that you don't have in like let's say air is that you know we have file system apis processes worker threads we have all these things so you can actually control uh the desktop app and control the environment and the operating system um much like you could if you were in c plus or you know c sharp or whatever i mean it's it's really a full environment it's not like a stripped down security model that it's really like a browser and a flash runtime and you don't really have all these kind of security you know you have all these security restrictions in air that you just you really shouldn't have in a true desktop app so does the desktop compile to windows mac and um linux then and linux yep so when 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 you when you write these cross platform apps on the desktop, I mean, do they look like native apps or yep. or or what? So I mean, if it's going to look like a Mac app or look like a yep. Windows app, yeah, they, so. yeah. I mean, and, and so you, you've run Titanium Developer, right? So the little you know you've run that, right? Right. That is a that's a Titanium desktop app. Okay. Hundred percent. It's a hundred percent written in JavaScript HTML. Now the the Titanium app does look 
like kind of like iTunes, right? It looks like it's a Mac kind of yep. um, look. But I mean, if I wanted to create something that had the same toolbar and kind of menu system, it looked kind of like a, a native Windows app. Yep. Could I do that? Yeah, yeah. When it runs in, and when it runs in, uh, for example, when you run it in like Arrow or and Windows, it looks it has the same Chrome and and all that that it would in uh, in, in a typical Windows uh, app. Yeah, because I I built a lot of stuff in uh, in you know .NET C Sharp and. You know that's cool and all, but you know you can't you can't move it over to the uh, Mac or Linux or anything like that, and so you're kind of stuck. And I had looked at things like Mono, but then that that looks like crap in, in Mac. It's, it's like, yeah. there's no there's no way. I mean, our goal is that the Chrome and the and the outer shell and all that stuff, which you can control. I mean, you can turn it on, you can, you can control it, you can make it transparent, you can do all that stuff in Titanium. Our goal really is very similar to to, to our goal in, in in the the mobile. It's to give the user the exact same look and feel and widgets and look. And, and, and capabilities and behavior as all the other apps in their device or their desktop. So right. when you run it under GTK, it looks just, and it is. I mean, I, I keep saying it, but it's, it, it's not just because it looks like it. It is a native GTK plus app in Linux. It is a Cocoa app in Mac. It's not like Flash that looks the same across all three platforms or Java Swing where you can say like, oh my god, that's a job swing app. But the desktop version is using WebKit in the middle, so it's yes. used, like the Chrome is built in the core in in that yes. that library. Uh, what was going to ask? Wait, wait, let me ask you a question. So the WebKit is used at runtime or just at build time? Uh, no, it's in, in desktop. It's used at runtime. Okay. As well, okay. yeah, it's 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 used. It's behind the scenes. It's not visual per se. I mean, there is some visual components before it, but like the Chrome is Windows straight, Windows thirty two API. Okay. Um, direct X, you know, rendering for the font glyphing and all that, but but it's a WebKit rendering. So WebKit itself is sort of split out into multiple projects, right? So WebKit has no front end per se. There right. is a front end for the rendering surface is done in a, another library. So it's either done in Cocoa or GTK or Cairo or you know, like in Safari, it's their own port, Windows port of Cocoa, um, which is proprietary. It's not open source, and so. And so, and so, Air is the same thing. Air has their own proprietary windowing environment. That that's why the rendering and the font glyphing and all that—it's a Flash-driven, Adobe-driven rendering environment. WebKit itself is sort of the parser and the document engine and all that. And as well as there's a JavaScript uh, engine called KJS that's part of the WebKit family um, that does the JavaScript engine. Is there a way? <laughs> just 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 to give me the perfect absolutely perfect environment is there a way to put a php.exe on the machine uh, that you're deploying to and basically javascript can somehow send a stream to php and php can some like can you can you include other yep. binaries so and things it, like that's, that that's built into that's built into uh, titanium desktop uh, titanium desktop so titanium desktop supports four languages you can write it in javascript you can write in PHP, you can write in Python, or you can write in Ruby. No and any of way. those languages can be mixed and matched at runtime on the fly. And, <laughs> and, they can, and because it's a microkernel sort of magic we call crawl, um, you can take, like, let's say, jQuery JavaScript file, and you could write a bunch of PHP code, and the PHP code can access jQuery functions as if they were in PHP and using the PHP namespace uh, and vice versa. Yep. Wow. It seems really easy to do. Yeah, it's really powerful. That, yeah. I, I just can't even believe that. Like, I, I know. I, I have... The hardest part we have sometimes is that, um, you know, 
sometimes people will say that's just not possible, and we're like, well, it is, and we've been doing it for a long time. And so, so the exact, so you're passing the exact same scripts through these different parsers, and well, what we have is our backing, our backing microkernel basically is at the core, it's all written in C, and so basically these binding, if you let's say you include PHP and you include that that capability. Um, we basically all the function pointers and all the global variables. At the end of the day, any language, you know, at the end of the day, every language basically is backed by a C-based memory model and and right. C-based functions, etc. So even when you're doing PHP interpreted, at the end of the day, those are C plus plus function or C functions and C variables, pointers in memory. And so what we do is we have this magic in Titanium. It knows how to bind these different languages at runtime into the same pointers and same memory addresses, so that no matter what language you use to actually invoke the function or touch, uh, you know, set or get the uh, variable, at the end of the day, it's all the same memory and same function space. Um, and so we just sort of allow you to do all that stuff. So have you literally recoded PHP and made your own PHP pos? No, no. What we've done is we've brought in the PHP interpreter, uh, the C++ interpreter of PHP, into Titanium's runtime if you include PHP into your project, basically. Um, and then we uh, it, it, it basically embed a PHP runtime engine or a Ruby runtime engine into your application at part of build time if you're using those languages. Now, if you're using JavaScript, you don't have to do that because that's already built into, um, built into Titanium. Um, but if you're using one of these other three languages, um, then yeah, it brings that interpreter real. It's all it's all underneath the covers to you. You don't know as a developer. You don't. You just it's magic, right? You don't know what's happening. But you can build PHP or Python or, or, or Ruby desktop apps as if you were doing it in JavaScript. So okay, so if you are doing that, does it have the kind of server request paradigm as well? Yeah, no. it does. Yeah. No, no, it doesn't. Um, you you would basically say script type instead of script type text slash JavaScript. You would say script type text slash Ruby, or you'd say script source equal foo dot rb or foo dot py or foo dot php. And then when it loads that PHP, um, it's loading it, um, you know, as if it was being loaded like a JavaScript file into that context, and then it provides you with a Titanium object just like you would have you know in all the other functions you have in php or ruby um, and you can then call like include or require or anything else that you would do let's say php and they get included from within your project now you know so as as as, as if they were on the server so it's a little mind warping because it isn't like a request response in the sense that you have to go to a web server to get the content all the kind of content is is in your application but it allows you to use the PHP language and all the functions and capabilities and external libraries um, of those languages. So it's really, really powerful. So when I click a button, rather than going to a web server, it just runs that's right. the PHP You're, code that's there. It, that's I, right. it, I link it to a function or whatever. That's right. Yeah. So and, wow. and, and so, so sort of like, you know, same with like a Ruby or Python. Let's say you want to include a module in Python, a third-party module. You could drop it into your project. Uh, include, you know, do an include or require whatever the language, uh, you know, language depends on the language, depends on how you sort of include it. Uh, and then Titanium will, you know, compile and build that all into your application and you'll you'll have that capability. So a lot of people want to use like, for example, you know, a, an IMAP library written in Python or, or, or Ruby. There's already one off the shelf. They can just go get it. It's open source. They can include it in their application. All of a sudden now they've got like Titanium client talking directly, let's say, to an IMAP server. Um, and they're using like a third-party IMAP library versus what you might do today is you would have to hit a web service, the 
web service would do this stuff on the back end, um, you know, and, and then bring the data back to the client. You could do some of these things, depending on the types of use cases, you could do some of these things directly from the client. And does so, all the networking work through PHP and through Ruby, yeah. et cetera? So it, it, can, it can open sockets and et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. And in fact, the latest release, um, the latest release of Titanium, we now support uh, native MySQL compiled PHP. So you should be able to do like native uh, MySQL from the client. So sort of a little bit going back in time, so sort of going back into client-server time. But for certain enterprise applications, um, that's a big requirement for some people because they want to build a native enterprise application that lives inside an enterprise. So it's not you know out in the public. Uh, they want to talk to like corporate or department uh, MySQL servers directly from the client versus having to go through a web services layer. Um, you know, I, and I'm not going to make a value judgment there. There's reasons you would do that and reasons you might not do that. You know, so but but we try to give you as much capability to be able to do whatever you want. Just like you know, just like you would have if you were working in, you know, .NET or Visual Studio. I mean, you know, you sort of we're going to give you an army of uh, of tools and a tool chest of capabilities, and it's really up to you as a developer to figure out how you want to build the coolest app. I can't understand why there's only only thirty thousand people using the product. <laughs> well, it's just after this right? I mean, we're a small company. We're not Adobe or you know, uh, you know, Apple. We don't have massive marketing budgets, so everything that we get today, all the growth, just comes from word of mouth. It just comes from people like yourself who say, "Oh my God, this is the best thing!" I keep, you know, and they go tell three other people, and so wow. uh, you know, that's that's yeah. uh, that's that's how that's how small projects like ours grow. Yeah, I think you guys are going to knock it out of the park. I mean, you know, may, you know, maybe it'll take a year or two for the word to spread wide enough, but you know, uh, it's it's just at least at least from the mobile side, which is the problem I'm trying to solve, it was a it was a no brainer. I mean, it was huge. Um, yeah, I have a question to you on the mobile side. Uh, one of our um, uh, one of our listeners had commented and said and wanted to know how how Titanium Mobile compared to say Row Mobile or uh, jQuery Touch. Okay, that's, that's an often asked question. So Row Mobile is um, is uh, another company here in town. Um, um, you know, we're just uh, you know I, you know Adam's a, a great guy and there's a good team. So um, we're, we have a lot of respect for those guys. They're just sort of we're trying to accomplish sort of two different things. I think um, we're really trying to accomplish the ability to provide a JavaScript layer to be able to build native applications that um, look, feel, and are compiled into native applications. Right. Um, a lot of other people, what they're trying to do is simply provide an, an HTML interface um, with a native wrap. So you can basically wrap it into a native application, so you can download it, install it, and potentially charge for it, but really it's a just a HTML web page that in some cases, like with JQ Touch, allows it to look like an iPhone app. So it mimics right. the look and feel. But the problem with that is from a practical sense, is that it's sort of like porn. You know, you sort of don't know how to describe it, but you know it when you see it. And in this case, right. sort of you don't you you know there's something not quite right with the app because it's not very responsive and it doesn't quite look the same and like the toolbars don't look the same and don't act the same. Um, but it's sort of like it's not it's hard to tell. Um, and that's sort of the problem with those types of, of, of products is that you don't really get you're not really using native controls and native capabilities. So you don't really get the native performance and native speed and, and sort of gestures and things like that. So yeah. Um, that that's just sort of they're just different approaches, right? I mean, it, it, our approach is really to build a JavaScript toolkit. So we're probably more like a mono touch in that case, um, where we're trying to use a language that compiles into a native application versus just sort of putting a web browser in a frame and 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 just rendering HTML. Yeah, I'm much. I'm I'm a, I'm a bigger fan of what you guys are trying to do. That's that's. 
I think there's so many fewer limitations. It just and uh, you know you don't. It doesn't really. And obviously, you've made it just as easy. I mean, I can't. Yeah. I can't imagine it being much easier than what it is. I mean, yeah. I, I was sort of shocked at how how little code it took to to do this stuff. Whereas I was shocked at how much code it's, uh, uh, Objective C it took to do anything. <laughs> you know, it's good grief. I'm just trying to get a color and set a color to a button, and it's like my God. It's like yeah, ten lines of code. Um, but uh, yeah. That's amazing. You know, uh, Justin, you mind if I switch directions here? I want to ask, um, uh, I'll go on a slightly different topic. Yeah. Yeah. More you can follow up on go for it. it. Yeah. So, um, uh, Jeff, you are from Atlanta, right? I am. Yes. And you, I, 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 I looked at your bio page and you had done, a, it seemed like you had really made an effort to kind of kickstart the tech startup community there. And it sounds like yes. you kind of uh, got frustrated and said, all right, fine. I give up. I'm going to Silicon Valley. It, uh, tell us a little bit about that. What happened? <coughs> Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I love Atlanta. I grew up in Atlanta. My family's in Atlanta. I'm, I'm sort of a Georgia boy. Um, Wait, where, where are you from in Atlanta? I, I mean, I'm from Atlanta too, so I'm curious. So I, I, I was born in Gainesville. I went to school in Gainesville, Georgia, and then I kind of early in my uh, teenage, my my parents moved to Atlanta, and I grew up kind of in the Norcross. I went to Norcross High School in sort of Norcross Duluth area, um, right. and and grew up there. And then and sort of after after high school, I went in the military and lived overseas for a number of years, and kind of came back to Georgia after school, um, after college, and then. Um, Spent a bunch of years in Atlanta through dot-com days. Um, I went to Jacksonville, uh, Florida for a few years to work on a big uh, big company down there and, and uh, came back to Atlanta to start a couple more startups. And uh, finally right. kind of got frustrated after 10 years of coming back and, and, and two companies, three companies later and sort of felt like, you know, I just uh, – this what we were trying to do. We felt like was so big and so important and so like um, such a big opportunity for us that it just felt like we would waste away in Atlanta um, and wouldn't have the contacts, wouldn't have the access to like good sort of solid sort of resources that are thinking about the future mm-hmm. um, and and companies that would ultimately be the companies that would be the influencers and the early adopters of what we're doing. And uh, Atlanta as a, as a technology scene is pretty small and the companies sort of around the technology scene, you know, out here in the Valley, you know, sort of the companies are, you know, Google and LinkedIn and Apple and all these sort of great technology giants and, and cool companies. Um, and there's an ecosystem for smaller companies to be able to do interesting, innovative things that larger companies kind of partner with. And, uh, you know, and, and, and there's exit opportunities potentially down the road if you're looking for that and things like that. Whereas in Atlanta, sort of the ecosystem is Turner and Georgia Pacific and Chick-fil-A and these really, you know, UPS, and these really big companies, but they are technology laggards. You know, they're the yeah. last people usually to adopt the technology. And so you have this sort of impedance mismatch where – you're trying to create something really cool, but the people and the consumers and all the kind of interesting people that would normally use that don't live there. They live in New York or they live in, in the Valley. And so you're sort of constantly sort of swimming uphill uh, or upstream. And, um, and, and, and so I just, I just sort of felt like Nolan and I, um, we'd spent the first sort of probably seven or eight months building the company in Atlanta. And finally, we just sort of said, you know what, we're going to raise money. And to be able to raise money and to build kind of the business we think we need to build, we need to be around the people that are going to really be the early adopters of this. And those people are not in Atlanta, you know, save a few. 
Um, well, so okay, I, I have a question. This is curious. I'm curious about this. Okay, so company, there are companies that are starting up, like you know, they say 37 Signals, right? They're Chicago, and they're obviously probably the biggest sort of thought leaders in the web, uh, you know, startup space. And you know, I'm just curious, like when you say you want to connect with people, I mean. Do you actually go and meet with these people and have dinner with them, or does it matter if you just talk yeah. to them on the phone and email? I mean, does it, for, from yeah. your standpoint as developing business, what kind of difference does it really make? Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I, I spend lots of time at, at Google and eBay and Yahoo and, uh, you know, you name so, it. I mean, yeah, so when yeah. you say you're there, what do you do? I mean, I mean, you see have contacts there and they're, and they're using your product and you're over there working with them, or how does that work out? Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I think, you know, um, uh, yeah, I mean, we had a we had a team. We had a uh, you know, I'll just give you a, a simple example. I mean, um, uh, one of our investors ran into some people at Google and were talking about us. And he said, "Well, you probably should meet with these guys and talk about." It. They were talking about some new initiatives that that Google's doing, and and they said, "Well, you should, you know, they're just down the street in Mountain View. You guys should just go over to their office or have them come over to your office." And they called me up and said, "Hey, can you guys come over tomorrow and have?" Uh, have a meeting with us, and we said, "Yeah, we're just you know we're in downtown Mountain View, so it's like yeah, two blocks away. We'll just come over." And we went over and had a meeting, and you know, hang out, and you know, and and now we're going to kind of go back over and talk about some other stuff. So, you know, that just right. doesn't happen if you got to say, "Well, hey, well, these guys are in Atlanta, and yeah. you know, like let's get on a plane, and we got to like book some trips." And it's like it's like the opposite of out of sight, out of mind. I don't know if there is a, a saying for it, but it's the opposite of that saying, basically. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I walk. I mean, we're right next door to Mozilla, and there's people, you know, where I'm out at lunch, and we'll run into people that we know, and uh, you know, I, I, you know, we, we're so yeah, we're doing projects with some of these companies, but at the same time, it's sort of like independent of like the business side of things. It's just sort of the, you know, I spoke at an event a couple months ago or three or four months ago, and uh, Doug Crockford was there, and then you know, I got to know him, and he introduced me to some other people, and you know, it's networking, right? I mean, it's, you, you sort mm-hmm. of. Right. Swimming in this pool of all these people that are doing really, really interesting things, and then mm. it just happens that a lot of the world looks to the, those people and those companies for what the next big thing is going to be, or you know, they read the tea leaves by saying, "Hey, what's Doug Crockford talking about?" or "What's you know Alex Russell over at uh, Google talking about?" and and it's sort of you know, and that, this is sort of how the world works, unfortunately. And, but you know, J- Jason, it's also it's like mind candy because when you're around these people and all these smart thinkers, you have lots of smart conversations. Yeah. And it just creates lots of possibilities in your in your mind, and that's kind of what, yeah, what we yeah. kind of like. I'll give you an interesting are. perspective. So when we moved out here, so my wife, you know, has been a, I've been married for almost eleven years, and, and my wife living in and having been in three startups now, and always been a technology kind of guy. Um, my wife in Atlanta was trained basically when somebody would say, "What does your husband do?" You know, typical sort of social interaction. What does your husband do? Right. My wife would say, "He's in technology." Right, because uh, that was a plain enough answer that sort of you know in a generic enough way it, you know, and yeah, so like, in, oh, Atlanta, right. in Atlanta it was almost always if they ask anything more it was always like oh he must be an IT guy does he work on fixing computers and so of course right. that he's a network to, guy yeah exactly that led into well no he he's sort of a software guy. Um, Oh, okay. Well, I'm not really sure what that means. <laughs> you know, in the valley, when she moved out, when we moved out here a couple of years ago, you know, she's been trained now to sort of say that. So you go to you go to the pre kids preschool when you meet people, and she's, they would say, "Well, what does your husband do?" And she would say, "Well, he's he's in technology." And the reaction out here is, "Well, no shit. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> of course he's in technology. I mean, he has a job." He? Yeah. So it's like, well, no. Well, who who's his startup? And she would say, "Well, he he works at AppCelerator." Oh. 
uh, you know, what investors are, you know, so it's a different <laughs> sort of mentality now. So now she's had to become way more educated about what we actually do because, you know, when she meets people out here, everybody's in this ecosystem. So even if they're not today in a startup, they probably came out of a startup or they were at once a startup or, you know, they work for a startup. So it's just a whole ecosystem of people that have done this, been there, and it's sort of everything's about this. Even, you know, the big companies now, they're still very deeply involved in some level with startup companies. So, yeah, well, you, you know, I, 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 yeah, I, you know, cause I'm in uh, Pasadena, California where, which probably is a, a few levels above Atlanta in terms of its density of tech people. Cause you know, right. Caltech and idea lab and things like that were around here. And I think even though idea lab itself isn't quite what it was, the residual yeah. uh, companies and people are still around here and there's some things going on, but still, I don't know. The, the only people that I know around here are doing anything like, this kind of tech and web or whatever startups or Isaac and Arnold from Central Desktop who we interviewed last week and that's pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and hey, what about um, me? Well, you, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. So <laughs> you, you were in Silver Lake. So you weren't in Pasadena. You're kind of closer in Glendale. You're up the street, but you're still not uh, in Pasadena. So I can't really consider you the Pasadena um, contingent, but it, anyway, you're right. So it's, it's, it is kind of isolating in that way. So I don't know anybody. So it's like when I talk about what I'm doing, it's just like uh, nobody knows. I don't even bother yeah. explaining. It. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I write for you know, whatever. Yeah. I mean, and, um, you know, we're here. We talk to people and, and, you know, you know, we'll often talk to somebody at Starbucks or down the street and they'll say, oh, yeah, I know what titanium is. Or, you know, uh, oh, yeah. I mean, I, I've heard of uh, Absolvator. Uh, now it's getting, it's getting, you know, the, more and more and more people are, are finding out about us. It's a lot, lot more easy to, to have that happen. But in Atlanta, I mean, it would just be like, uh, you know, uh, what is that? <laughs> well, is- well I, I think you guys are going to be huge. So I, I think Justin and I got to go down and get in. And I want to register as like the early adopters, right? You know, the guys <laughs> who like the band before it becomes popular. Absolutely. Right? We got just programs before, for that. We, we, we knew you guys when you're a little small. We interviewed you because I think this is going to be huge. It's all. <laughs> so, 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 um, I appreciate it. But no, I want to ask you too another thing. So a couple of other things on the on the uh, thing. You, you know, you said you had uh, worked with uh, something at eHatchery, which uh-huh. was an option Idea Lab. So yep. a couple of things. What what was I? What was the relationship to Idea Lab? What was it? And so what uh, Idea Lab was an investor, uh, and Bill Gross was on our board. Um, Bill Gross is the founder of Idea Lab, one of the founders. He's also and, the inventor of Google AdSense. And he's the inventor of, yeah, he's, he's what became a lot of big ideas today. I mean, Cars yeah. Direct, um, yeah, there's just a lot of really incredibly f- things today that are being done on the web. He was talking about back then. Yeah. Um, and, back and then being literally 10, 12 years ago. Oh, yeah, 11, 11, 12 years ago. I mean, we started eHatchery in 90, 98 or 99, I think, um, maybe 98. And, uh, you know, it was uh, – was very early. I mean, the biggest problem we had with the internet wasn't that the ideas were awful and sucked. It was that there weren't enough people on the internet to be able to scale these businesses. And yeah. now if you look back and you look at a lot of the businesses that are doing really well today, we saw all those business plans. I mean, we saw a lot of this stuff happening. Um, it's just taken a long time to get 1.8 billion people on the internet today. Um, and so... But yeah, he, he's a phenomenal. So what we did was um, myself and a, and a guy, really the, the kind of idea person behind the, the, the idea, uh, the hatchery idea was a guy named Jeff Levy, who I had worked with um, at a company called Relevant Knowledge, which went public in the dot-com days, was a company called Media Metrics. Uh, and they were sort of the, the web measurement company 
um, on the web at the time, before Quantcast, before all these kind of people like that, there was uh, Media Metrics, and it was kind of a Nielsen-like um, panel-type um, measurement company. And that's how Yahoo and all these, when the advertising age was being built on the web, that's how they 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 built it through this independent measurement company. And uh, Jeff had built that company up, took it public during the dot-com days, made a bunch of money, had met Bill Gross uh, at a conference, and they had gotten kind of enamored with each other. And and he, uh, I had helped him at another company, and uh, when I that I had owned, and um, we decided to uh, uh, start the uh, hatchery with this sort of idea that there were more cat. You know, again, you have to take this in the context of the dot com world. There was more capital than there were people who could execute, um, and there were more good ideas than there were people who could execute. And if you could build basically a series of these incubators kind of in these large technology areas around the country um, and sort of create a mechanism by which you could – we called it ideation or we called it – we had a process called acceleration. If you could sort of take entrepreneurs that had really good ideas, you could take large sums of capital because people wanted to be invested in sort of these aggregate areas of interest, then um, – and then you could take sort of – a data center and a bunch of technology people that were able to sort of work on this sort of like mini startups. Um, and you could put all that together because you sort of create these very interesting businesses and spin them out basically and raise money for them and spin them out. And then the original kind of entity, which is kind of what Idea Lab was and what we were modeled after, would own a, a portion of this alongside the entrepreneur. Uh, and then you could create kind of a, a portfolio effect, kind of like a holding company that could be worth billions of dollars. Um, so what happened? How did it play out? Well, so what happened was the dot-com blew up. Um, it, you know, a number of factors, macro and, and micro, happened. I mean, on the macro side, um, this whole, you know, there were so much crazy dollars chasing um, chasing this that, you know, your grandmother was investing. My parents invested a, a huge amount of money in eHatchery. I mean, everybody was telling you know, people were quitting these crazy good jobs to just start a startup, right? And it was just absolutely nuts. And so, uh, like, yeah, that's any, that's a pure sign of a bubble. It's like when your mom or the taxi driver start talking about something. Yeah, everybody as has as, a as soon as they're buying houses or doing biotech or buying, you know, yeah. some stock. That's when you sell. Get out. Exactly. It is the time, last call. Sell. That's right. And so what started happening is this crazy. So, so what we got was we had we had raised four, fourteen million dollars in capital, and we raised it in about six months, a little less than that, probably. Uh, from um, Idea Lab, uh, UPS Ventures, DLJ at the time, Investment Bank at the time, uh, just a number of you know, um, uh, very quickly raised a bunch of money, and then we turned around and then and, and we we started about, I can't remember the, it's been so long now. It was about eight or ten companies we started, uh, you know, with with entrepreneurs, um, and we got up to about aggregate uh, employees, about 250 employees, and probably about six months. Um, now that just wasn't. We had about seventy-five, I think, or sixty of those employees were on the eHatchery payroll, and then the rest were sort of on the payroll of our portfolio companies, which we were funding. Uh, we provided this huge space. It's like huge space in, in Midtown Atlanta, two-story, huge building. You know, fifty thousand dollars of cool chairs. I mean, it was just you know, it was the it was the craziness of the dot-com days. Uh, we built a million-dollar data center out that we could host all these companies' gear so they didn't have to buy individual equipment. We could just have this massive data center with all this gear already pre-built. We had this huge technology team. And so what happened was 
couple things happened. One is we found that there was a sort of adverse selection effect because the really um, good entrepreneurs were getting ridiculous valuations for their companies um, outside of us um, because they were, you know, because of the sign of the times, people were throwing money in anything. So if you had a good pedigree and you had a good team and an interesting idea, you could raise serious ton, uh, money. What we had was this sort of adverse selection because what that meant was people we got into our incubator uh, weren't those people, right? So they sort of had this adverse selection where we got a bunch of people who couldn't get funded otherwise that came to us. So that meant then that we necessarily didn't have the cream of the crop entrepreneurs and ideas uh, that we were investing in because we had kind of more onerous terms than your normal VC and, and we had all this value we brought, but you know, you didn't necessarily appreciate that at the time. And so then the dot-com bubble exploded and, and the company exploded alongside of it. What do you think of the new, the sort of the new version of incubators, the Y Combinators, Tech, Tech, was it Tech Stars, Tech, tech Stars? Yeah, I love it. And I mean, Capital I, Factory. Yeah, I mean, I love it. There's one in Atlanta now. Um, that, is that Tech Stars or is that another? No, Tech, tech Stars Denver. Denver oh. Yeah, um, it's it's called it's it's uh, it's by a number of people, Mitch Free and and David uh, Cummings and Sanjay Parikh and a bunch of really kind of well-known entrepreneurs in the Atlanta area started their own kind of version of that. And, uh, you know, they've had a handful of, uh, they've only, I think they're now starting their second class. So they've only really had one kind of class go through it where white combinators had, you know, now a number of them. Uh, I love it. I mean, I love the idea. I mean, I think the problem is a for-profit incubator, um, you know, purely a for-profit incubator sort of misaligns with, um, kind of what you have to do to be able to create a return because it sort of doesn't necessarily, if you're trying to make money off your investment at the same time you're trying to make an investment, it sort of misaligns interest and sort of, uh, you can't be a provider, a service provider and an investor, right? Um, okay. Because they have that <laughs> they're diametrically opposed to interest, right? A service provider, you need to extract as much value and revenue out of you. As an investor, I want to put as much into you so that you can create more value, right? So right. Can, you, can you give us an example of why, of, of, of how that could affect one of these well, kind of so we, we would charge companies uh, – we, we would invest, let's say, a quarter million dollars into the company. Uh, so we invested a lot more than like a Y Combinator. We would invest a quarter million dollars into a company. And then we would turn around and say, well, we're going to then turn around and take some of that money back from you to offset our cost. We're going to charge you $500 per desk. And that includes everything. That includes everything in the facility, phone, the – you know, everything, HR, finance, the whole thing, right? We're going to charge you that. So you're going to now go out and hire people and you're going to now pay us back. Now, we're, you know, it's nowhere near what it would cost you if you had to go out and do this on your own because we're, we're subsidizing it for you. But we still have to subsidize it. We still have to kind of get some of that money back from you. So that puts you at odds, right? Because then you start going, well, geez, could I just go work out of my house? Just give me the money and I'll figure <laughs> out how to make it cheaper than $500 a head. Yeah, right. Um, and so what it does, it causes sort of counterbalancing problems where you start to work. So we, we had a lot of issues. I had this one classic uh, confrontation with, a big, with an entrepreneur where we required that when you used our copiers, you had to enter a company code, right? Because there's a, 10 companies in the, in the building. We need to charge the right amounts to the right companies. And it was a nominal amount. It was, it was almost, it didn't matter what the amount was, right? It was a principal thing for him. It was like, no, I mean, I'm not going to enter this company code in. It's stupid. It's a copier. It's costing you guys 10 cents or something to do this, right? And, and you've given me half a million, almost a half a million dollars, this company. 
And, you know, and so that's a good example of where, but for us, we had to offset these, these costs to some degree, right? Um, otherwise, it, it sort of what didn't really, the equation didn't quite work. So I think public incubators were, or I should say, nonprofit incubators work okay. The problem with a nonprofit incubator is the exact opposite. They don't have an incentive necessarily to create a return, right? Mm-hmm. So there's not that capitalistic instinct that says, I have to create a return. Um, there's on the flip side, uh, a for-profit incubator, a pure for-profit incubator that operates like a services incubator has the, the profit motive, but then they have this misalignment. So probably the better kind of counter, like the medium sort of medium road is something like a Y Combinator where you have a profit incentive through the individuals that are making these investments because they want to see these companies gain, you know, uh, fame and fortune for their own benefit but they're doing it, you know. They're doing it not necessarily for the incubator to be able to make a huge portfolio return. They're doing it for their own incentives and, and sort of this altruistic sort of ability to sort of create good and give back and help companies out and things like that. So it has a different alignment of interest, I think. And so I think that sort of works a lot better um, because it's really an, an angel network with some, you know, kind of jumpstart capabilities versus a. It's more like a VC um, than it is sort of a, an incubator in those cases. What do you think of the whole ramen noodle profitable, ramen profitable kind of thing? This idea of um... – I mean I love the idea um, for, for a certain sector of companies. I think it works well. I mean and, and sort of Paul Graham talks a lot about this. I mean a ramen noodle profitable company is really a web services light, internet light company, right? I mean how do you build – in today's world, you could go build Amiibo. You could go build a Yelp. You could go build a company like that in the early days a Gowalla, a Foursquare, a, you know, et cetera, for not a lot of capital initially. They're capital efficient. They don't have to be really huge amounts of people and infrastructure and sales costs, et cetera, to build that out, right? right. Um, and that's a perfect example. If you're doing manufacturing or if you're doing silicon or if you're doing things like that, I mean, there's just no way you can, you know, you got to buy a plan or you got to hire 50 people to do this one thing. It just doesn't work well. So, I think for certain types of businesses, it's 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 especially the internet age of businesses, it's really smart. And I think entrepreneurs should try to do that. I mean, I think the best thing that entrepreneurs can do, that especially if they're starting out, is just go build a product and start getting people to use it. Um, I, I have a lot of conversations when I speak on entrepreneurship. You know, they're like, I'm I'm at my job and I got this idea, and you know, when when you know, how do I get funding? And I'm like, you're never going to get funding. A A, I'm not sure you should get funding. But, but let's put that aside for a second. Let's say you want to get funding. Nobody's going to give you money while you're still at this cushy job and while you're not even working on your idea um, at your own risk, right? I mean, nobody's going to do that outside of your, your friends and fools. Um, <laughs> so you got to sort of step out there and start building. And if you can't afford to quit your job, which is understandable, especially in this economy, um, at least be working on your company and at least be working on your idea all, you know, all the rest of the time that you're uh, that you're uh, you can, right? So, um, but the hardest thing is, I mean, I've talked to several, um, uh, you know, entrepreneurs that finally did this that were, that were, you know, uh, what, what kind of advice can you give me? And I said, quit your job. I mean, you know, of course this was three years ago and <laughs> when things were a little bit easier, quit your job, but, um, quit your job. You know, if you really want to start a startup company, quit your job. That's the first best thing you can do if you really are serious about and have the stomach to be an entrepreneur because, you know, it, it uh, until you quit your job, it doesn't really matter. It's just, it's just a dream. It's just an idea that you're never going to execute against. 
I'm glad we're talking about this because this this current subject is the whole point of texting and it's what we talk about. Essentially, the idea of how do you get liberated from your day job to yeah. becoming, you know, an owner of your own business. And this is the perfect, perfect discussion point. Jason, yeah. do you have anything to say about this? Well, you know, yeah, I mean, there's, there's like, yeah, there's, there's a couple different roads, which is the one which you take financing. If another kind, which seem like a lot of our listeners um, have succeeded with and, you know, which you, you've started to see some success with is starting a side project. So if you're a consultant and you bill so many hours a week or a month, then you have a certain number of hours free that you can use to create some kind of a web application or software or whatever. And, and, and that can grow and bootstrap it. I mean, you know, it's, you know, but that, that, and that seems to work for some people. I mean, you know, that's yeah. all Basecamp and, um, you know, 37 Signals. There's a lot of examples of companies that have bootstrapped and become very successful. And there's a, it just, I think it just kind of depends. I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into what people can and can't do. I mean, if you have wife and kids, you know, quitting your job and, you know, or taking five or $10,000 investment from Y Combinator isn't even an option. It's yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's hard. I mean, it, it can be an option, but it's a, it's a different path and it takes a different, you know, yeah, I have, for I have most people. three kids, so, right. um, you know, there are, there are people who can do it, but, but at the same time, yeah, you're right. It's, it's, it's not a rational option for most people. And that, and that I think separates the wheat from the chaff. Yeah. And I guess if you have a, if you have a, a lot of savings and maybe you can, you can do it, I guess. And, um, or your, or your living expenses are really low or, or whatever, but yeah, I mean, just there's two different roads. I mean, in some companies, you know, require a lot of capital, obviously. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think the, 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 the calculus really is it depends on you and your own uh, risk profile. It depends on the type of company you're building and in, in, you know, the competition and the speed. A lot of the times it depends on you know, the opportunity cost because raising capital potentially can help you accelerate um, things in a space which maybe things are moving really fast. I mean like mobile is a good example. It's moving really fast. We could slow grow this and spend the next four or five years – you know, trying to just one at a time get people to, you know, adopt our technology or we could invest in it and move it along pretty fast. And you may lose opportunity if you don't, if you don't seize upon the time. So not well, all the like, businesses are that like, way. Yeah, it seems like what you're, what you're doing is, is, is very timely. I mean, it really is of the moment for the next few years. Like how are people going to go about building these internet applications or these mobile applications and things like that? And it is so difficult to build them, especially if you're trying to build them for Android and iPhone and whatever else. Somebody's going to come out there and go, there's an easier way. We built the technology and we're going to profit from this. I mean, Palm Palm Pre are basically trying to do do the same thing with the Pre, right? But the difference is, is that the end platform's just the Palm. So that's the reason. So they've got the right idea in the sense of trying to unlock all of the web developers, but they've got the wrong idea in the sense of they're just going, you know, it only ends up on their proprietary platform. Yeah, Whereas I mean, you the, the, the problem that you guys have, I mean, the problem that Palm has, and, and gosh, I like those guys a lot. I really admire a lot of what they're doing. I mean, it's like you said, it's, it, it doesn't really matter ultimately if they can't get consumer demand, you know, for exactly. their devices. Because, like you said, you're back to just using their stuff to build against their proprietary platform, of which if that platform isn't white hot like iPhone, it didn't yeah. matter anyway, right? Because yeah. as a publisher, you got to sort of choose who you can sort of invest time and energy and, and risk around. And unfortunately, Palm is, is struggling a little bit with on the consumer side. I think the technology stack's phenomenal. I mean, it's a great idea, right? Um, so, but yeah, uh, and that's, that's part of the calculus, I think. I, I have could, another question. Right, go on, Justin. I have one more question. For, okay, let me just ask this one. This, this may be a difficult question. I mean, couldn't Palm just, given that they probably do have more, 
resources and funding than you guys <laughs> could couldn't they just kind of go okay look we're, we're done in the hardware market let's just focus on this web to um, platform basis and basically come into complete competition with you guys I mean, yeah, certainly any big company with any amount of resources could do something silly like that. But, uh, but you know, I think there's a, a sort of a larger macro thing that happens with Palm, and that's probably uh, they're going to get bought this year. Um, right. Uh, you know, I mean, if they can survive that long. I mean, I, you know, I think the and, – and I'm no I'm no expert or certainly not an insider. I'm just – this is just my Jeff Haney. And, wh- and why wouldn't they just buy you anyway? It's going to be much faster. <laughs> Well, you know, yeah, <laughs> much faster to zero, maybe. But um, <laughs> I, you know, I, we're not for sale. Um, right. But uh, but I, you know, I mean, it would be kind of weird, right? Because I, unless they were dropping their device platform, which Palm has done before, right? I mean, Palm has gone through this a couple of times, right? It feels like they're kind of they don't learn as they as they go around the the turn here a couple of times. Um, yeah, I mean, it's the problem is you sort of have like what what our value ends up being is that we're not necessarily owned or controlled by any one manufacturer, right? right. We, we sort of have this independence to us that allows us to run on many platforms, um, and that's part of our value. Um, but but yeah, who who knows, right? I mean, what their rationale is, and I mean, they've got really cool devices, they've got really cool software, they've got some really great people over there. Um, I think it's just difficult in a race where you're up against not one or two big companies but against like five you know you're up against not only now apple and google but you're up against rim and microsoft and nokia and you know let's throw in dell and samsung and all these other htc and all these other guys in the mix now um it's just it's hard to be sort of number five uh, and really get Massive sort of traction, unless you're somebody like Google, right? Who can just sort of you have nothing to lose, you got everything to gain. Um, yeah. So that's that's the problem with Palm is your sort of whole revenue model and sort of whole business model is built around something by which you could probably you'll never get even to number three. So and number five in that market is not good enough, right? They're up against superstars as well. That's the other problem. Like the people who are running those other companies that you've. Yeah, you know, the number one and the number two. Yeah, are very smart people. Yeah, well, they have <laughs> uh, they have revenue sources that come from many different things. Like that's not right. their primary revenue source. So anything they do is incremental to them. I mean, and, and significant potentially, right? But Apple, Apple is going to add top line revenue because of iPad. But it wasn't like if they didn't make that happen, it wasn't they weren't going to go out of business. If, yeah. if Palm doesn't make this happen and they can't get to pretty big. They will go out of business or get bought, right? I mean, it's just there's no other thing that they can generate enough revenue a- around. Google's not going to go out of business. You know, this is like one tenth, probably of one percent of their income today. So it's all found money. Anything they do is is just upside. Uh, and when you're battling against that, it's it's an unfair fight. So, um, okay, so I have one one last question. Looks like we're running. Pretty long here, uh, Justin. So I was one other thing I, I thought sure. it would be kind of interesting to hear about is um, so Jeff, I co-hosted uh, the first bar camp in LA. I think they've done about seven of them now, and I noticed on your bio that you, I think, um, hosted or co-hosted yep. the the bar camp Atlanta. Yeah, how did that? Yeah, well, here's a couple of things I, ha- I have to ask about that. One, how did it go? And you know, have you kept have they kept up? And secondly, I've just it seems like the bar camps have kind of died out a little bit. I haven't been hearing about them as much. Yeah, which, I mean, which, you know, it's like a lot of things. Once they kind of become like everybody's doing it, they're not really cool anymore. You know, right, they don't yeah. really. And it's not because I don't think they're cool anymore. I think it's because 
if everything becomes like unconference style, like I started this other conference and I'll kind of come back to like Barcamp. I started this other conference about the same time called SoCon. Um, and it's now become a really big conference. So we just did the fourth one this year, four years. Um, and it was the first social media unconference style conference uh, in Atlanta. It was actually the largest one in the Southeast um, four years ago. Now it's still the largest one, but I mean, it was the first thing. Nobody had ever been doing it. Jeff Jarvis was doing some, you know, a bunch of people were starting to do these unconferences. Um, and we had like the first one, I think we had 250 people show up. And it was just, you know, it was awesome. And, and now, like, and when and four years ago when we did it, sort of like Bar Camp, four years ago when we did it, people didn't even know what Twitter was. Certainly it wasn't hardly around four years ago. People didn't know what Facebook was. I mean, Facebook was still pretty much a college thing. Blogging, right. I mean, we were trying to explain to people what blogging was. Now, these weren't average people. These were technology people, right? right. Um, what's blogging? What's RSS? I mean, we taught all these people what all this you know, social media was, you know, all these things. This year, I went back. Um, and, and spoke because I'm one of the original founders and is sort of still fairly involved. This year, everybody was on Facebook. Everybody's on Twitter. Everybody, you know, half the audience, especially in this economy, half the audience are social media experts. So, you know, four years ago, these people didn't know what RSS feeds were and didn't even know what, uh, you know, uh, Facebook even was. And so now this year, of course, everybody's a social media consultant. You know, you right. know, sort of you're at this tipping point. You're at this sort of, uh, you know, jumping the shark point when you get to that point and everybody sort of shows up to these conferences. And I think that's kind of what's happened with unconference, not to necessarily, I think that means it's been successful, frankly, is like um, sort of like the dot-com bubble. You know, when your grandmother's talking about Twitter, you know, and Facebook, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's sort of like crossed that chasm. It's not really technology anymore. It's just it's not, the world. Yeah. And that's happened a lot with bar camps. I mean, everybody sort of is doing these sort of unconference style things that they're not really even unconference anymore. Like this year when we did the SoCon thing, we call it an unconference or whatever, but it was not unconference really. It was pretty much planned agenda, planned speakers, planned everything, unconference style, <laughs> but right. uh, it really wasn't unconference. So um, the first year we did uh, bar camp um, in Atlanta, we probably had – we did it at HDC, um, uh, and it, which is Georgia Tech's uh, kind of incubator, and we, we got a room – uh, and luckily, I, I had uh, I had been in uh, uh, an ATDC member company before, so I knew a bunch of people, and we were able to get a room. And ATDC was graciously to kind of help, kind of get this thing put it on, help us put it on. And because I had uh, not enough money, I um, just started you know this company, and we were putting all our money into this. So um, I got a couple of sponsors, so we could buy stuff for people, and we just camped out in uh, one of the rooms at HDC, which people uh, thought we were crazy. Um, why we'd want to do that. And we probably had about 40 or 50 people maybe, and probably 20 of them ended up camping out all night. Um, and it was a huge success. I mean, it was, you know, got a like-minded people together and we talked about all these issues, a lot of bitching and complaining about startups and, and, uh, Ruby was really getting hot at the time. So we hacked on Ruby and people just showed off different technologies. Um, it has kind of kept up. I mean, Michael Mealing is kind of, uh, another kind of well-known tech guy in Atlanta, kind of put, picked up the reins um, for me and um, and sort of has continued to do it. And, uh, and uh, but, you know, and, and, and like I said, it, it's kind of now gotten this huge, you know, a lot of people show up, a lot more planned, you know, bar camp and name, but, uh, you know, it's not quite the same as what it was when it was 40 or 50 hackers kind of sitting around and, and drinking beer and talking about, you know, how do we sort of change the world? Right. Hey, Jason, I've got one quick question. 
Um, so one of the things about texting is um, we're we're still we're we're a young podcast. Where this is like episode thirty six, and we keep on uh, discussing the direction that we're going to go in. And mainly we're about startups and we um, talk about startup stuff, but we also go off on different tangents. Huh? And one of our listeners has suggested that we rename our podcast to Startups and Aliens. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so the question is, is if, 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 if we were called Startups and Aliens and we called you up and asked you to come on our show, would that you is, have actually come on the show? Hell or? yeah. That's awesome. Man, you can have a cool little logo and everything because you are an alien if you join a startup in my opinion. <laughs> You're crazy <laughs> as hell to join a startup, and you're even more crazy to start a startup. And I, I think that's awesome. Yes, of course. I mean, you need to have fun, right? Life is about being fun and, and creating yeah. a personality. And yeah, I mean, it's it's startups are hard. I mean, you know, it's it's uh, there's a lot of glamour in the end if you're successful, and everybody remembers how great it was, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, I mean, yeah, we kind of uh, wanted to because you know, obviously, we're, we're, we we you know, a lot of our shows there's a lot of joking around. We don't take ourselves that seriously. And uh, I think last show we actually started talking about crazy stuff, like you know, we we started even talking about UFOs. And so that's one of the guy said, "Yeah, startups and aliens." <laughs> so I love we're that. like, I don't know if you're going to take us seriously. Or I think it's got a good ring to it. I think it's a good a good there podcast is. name. Well, the way, when I mentioned to uh, Justin, it's like when you put it names and you juxtapose two words that you wouldn't expect. Like, exactly. Then people are like, startups and aliens. What is that? You know? Awesome. So we'll see. <laughs> I guess we'll see from our, from our, our listener feedback in the comments if people like it or think it's stupid or whatever. You know? Yeah. Let us know. Yeah, don't listen to too many people. That's the other thing. Yeah, yeah. don't listen to too many people. If you listen to people, they'll, they'll tell you never to do something and you'll never do it. So, But yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's a great name. I love that. Oh, cool. Well, great. Well, Justin, we should wrap this thing up. We've gone over an hour and a half now, so probably... It's uh, been a great show. Yeah, it has. Thank you so much, Jeff, for uh, taking the time and coming on to us. I'd love to do it anytime. Like I've said, I'm really impressed with the product. I'm going to be a big user of it. I think a lot of our listeners are probably going to end up checking this out and and, uh, using it. And yeah, we should have best of luck. And uh, We'll stay in touch and do this again. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, all right, that's a wrap. We're out.